0: Uh, hello and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we will attempt to talk about films uh, in the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. I am Joe Gastineau, and joining me uh, after a long break uh is uh mighty fine blogs ed davis how are you doing sir i'm doing very well how are you i'm mighty fine uh you've been uh on the other side of the atlantic uh what have you been up to uh
1: i spent most of my time in florida visiting my family who all live over there and um, where i will possibly be moving to fairly soon although fingers crossed on that um and uh, other than that, I went up to Washington, D.C., which mm-hmm. I've never visited before. It was very nice. Apart from the fact that I went there at the absolute crest of the heat wave that they've had, and it was about, it was 105, 110 degrees what? Fahrenheit, which is basically body temperature more or less, wow. uh, in uh, in Celsius as well, Uh And uh, it was very warm, but that meant that I just had to keep ducking in out of the many fabulous museums that they have in Washington. Uh, And then just generally, you know, went sightseeing, went around all the various museums, uh, went to, because the Smithsonian has about 17 museums in the centre of Washington that you can walk around, so went to ones to do with, you know, uh, mainly about Lincoln, I'm a big Abraham Lincoln kind of uh, fan? You're a big fan, fan of Lincoln? Big fan of him. No, I'm very very. <laughs> well, this year you're
0: spoiled for choice for Lincoln films, aren't you? I know. You've got, uh, one where he's uh, a president of America,
1: another one where he's a vampire hunter. Yeah, well, no. In Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, he's both. So, oh, you know. okay. Uh-huh. This isn't
0: like a prequel to become him coming... President. No,
1: he's a vampire hunter for a bit, and then he's president, and then it ends with him going to have a lovely evening at Ford's Theatre. Oh, which okay. I, which I did visit as well because yep. you can go in Ford's Theatre and you can see the presidential box. They don't let you into it because obviously it's a it's a landmark. It's a, it's a murder scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and in the Smithsonian they had Lincoln's top hat that he had he was wearing, or stovepipe hat which he was wearing when he was shot. Or When he died, I don't think he had it on his head at the time.
0: That'd be rude to wear that in the theatre. Especially for the person sat behind you. Yeah, exactly. Who at that point was holding a gun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He'd only been wearing a hat.
0: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, John Wilkes Booth was an actor, I believe. A Shakespearean actor. He was a
1: Shakespearean actor. He was from the foremost acting dynasty in America. So he was very famous.
0: So, by that rationale, Drew Barrymore should be assassinating a, a, Obama at some point. I think that's in the most likely
1: going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Or, or one of the Houston's,
0: uh, Danny, Danny Houston. It would be Danny. I, he's by far the most likely. Um, <laughs> although uh, the girl from the Goonies is Robert Carradine or David Carradine. He's a she's a Carradine. She's a Carradine. Yeah. She's a Carradine. Isn't she only just found that out recently. Anyway, that rather rambling introduction um, leads us to uh, the topic of. Uh, uh, of of this podcast We normally have a theme but this is not really a theme is it We're talking about directors yeah, And we're talking about uh, the importance of directors Obviously you do need a director because um, Well otherwise it wouldn't be a film would it um, But I'm going to kick things off uh, With a, a kind of An open uh, statement um, Which is something I heard uh, The actor Christopher Ecclestone say He said uh, Theatre is an actor's medium, film is a director's medium
1: Discuss Okay uh, yeah, I think that's uh, definitely true because of the visual aspect. You know, there's not a huge amount of... Because of, of the use of, of montage and, and things like that, which are obviously di- depicted, di- dictated by a director. Mm-hmm. That is is where the director's hand comes more into play and the decision when to use music, when not to mu- use music, when to end a scene and, and things like that. Whereas... In theatre, you know, those things play a role, but it has to unfold physically in front of you
0: within the space. And the person watching it might not be looking where you want them to look and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, there's no no way for you to tell everyone, to to infer importance other than from what the actors are saying, Mm -hmm. which uh, is something that's very easy to do in... Uh, filmmaking you just have to insert a close-up of someone's face or an object or you know similar so yeah so it's that that on that basic level that's why it's it's more of a director's medium than an actor's medium and because the director has a greater say in shaping also the performance of the actor because they can choose different takes Mm -hmm. they can whereas you know theater the actor gives his performance and that is what people see
0: yeah once the theater performance begins the director has no input in mm. it they can do what they like essentially on stage i mean i'm not to say that directors aren't important in theater no. um but um it's slightly less so you don't see a director's name above the title no. on a theater poster very uh, rarely do you
1: see it on a poster in the theater um, and yeah, conversely uh once the film has been completed that's where the actor kind of uh, that's where their involvement
0: stops yeah they hand their, they hand they do their work they give what been asked to do yeah. and they hand the component parts of the film over to the director to um, put together I've done both I've directed plays and I've directed uh, films um, equally as bad uh, both in both mediums um, and um, I absolutely fucking hated directing theatre <laughs> uh, because you felt so powerless once it was going on and you right. couldn't shout cut and you couldn't change it and whatever the people in the audience you can't you have to say to them, oh you should have come yesterday it was so much better yesterday yeah he didn't fall over and his head didn't come off yesterday mm-hmm. um but in a film you can you can do what you like the power's uh, intoxicating uh, i made a um assistant director tie my shoelaces because uh, i wanted to see if i could and uh, <laughs> i was immediately apologetic to her i just asked her if she would and she did and i was like wow this is this is mental um but the director the role of director um in the art form of cinema cuz it's the youngest art form i guess
1: yeah uh, of, of the big four of the big four um,
0: yeah. it's uh, the you know, we're talking an art form that was in late, invented in the 1800s kind of mid to late 1800s um feature films have only really been around since the early 1900s um the role of director in those films is something that really has uh it's been through so many kind of Uh, modes really it's been in flux um it probably started out in the kind of 20s with these uh the the kind of silent films which were quite often directed by the stars as well so someone like buster keaton or a a charlie chaplin would would be the kind of the total controlling influence over it because they were behind and in front of the camera
1: yeah or um in the case of people who didn't act in the films, or or maybe people who started out as actors, like I think D.W. Griffith started as an actor and eventually, because that, cause that was the thing as well, There was often a very fluid sort of thing, is once you were work, started working for a studio, it was easy to kind of move up through the various things mm-hmm. and then wind up a, you know a director within a year or so of starting. But for them, it would be a case of they would just constantly go from project to project, which is why... You know, there were thousands of films created in the early part of the 20th century, often by, you know, a relatively small number of, of directors. If you look at a lot of the silent era directors, they'll have, you know like eight hundred credits to their name or something ridiculous. And the like films that. were a lot shorter as well
0: back in the Yeah, day. but
1: even when you get into sort of feature feature film making they'd still be cranking out quite a few a year because they were, you know, hired by they were hired hands essentially and it was like once you'd finished production on one film, instantly go into the next one, the next one, the next one. And, and
0: I mean that, that rolls over into the kind of golden age of the studio system, the the thirties where um, you know, uh, directors, stars, everyone were contracted to individual studios, which had their own kind of house style and a way that they like to work. But that's when you, you kind of got the first real concrete impressions of 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 directors
1: laying an individual stamp on mm. on films. Yeah, although there were, yeah, I think uh, there's the, the there's the distinction that's going to come up over and over is the distinction between someone who's doing it as a job and people who are doing it because they are artists and that's how they express themselves. So Sometimes there's overlap between yeah, there's, the two.
0: Yeah, there's, there's blurring there.
1: Yeah, there's blurring as well. But even in the sort of early days where people were cranking out those sort of things, there were people who had a distinct style. You know, you've got someone like an F.W. Murnau who's un- undoubtedly, you know, his film's pretty much unmistakably his. Griffith has his own. Lang. Scent. Lang, yeah, Lang definitely. Chaplin, Keaton, mm-hmm. obviously... Part of that is, is tied up in the fact that they were both on the screen, so it's kind of... It's hard to mistake a Buster Keaton film for anyone else's because Buster Keaton's in it. Yeah. But even so, like, the the way in which they use the medium, you know, feels like them and, and their their distinct timing or, you know, the, the kind of uh, schmaltzy, saccharine element of uh, of Chaplin's stuff, certainly his stuff as the tramp, uh, is distinctly his. Uh but, yeah, as, as you move further along that line, uh, it, you start to see more people rising up through the ranks who are able to kind of do that. Uh, like Hitchcock, obviously, from a very early point in his career, was very obviously someone who had his own style and mm-hmm. that just got more and more pronounced the longer he was working. Uh, John Ford, another one. Howard Hawks.
0: Howard Hawks, yeah. I mean, these... And what what to this day stuns me about Howard Hawks in particular, is that he managed to do so much in so many genres mm. working within the studio system where he was assigned a script and assigned a genre. He, he didn't say oh, I want to make a western this week. He was given the job to do, but still managed to print his uh, uh, style upon it. And yeah. I think he, he's uh, one of those rare directors who has done a classic in most
1: genres. Yeah, it's, it's uh yeah, definitely. I mean, a man who's made Rio Bravo and bringing up Baby. And sort of the thing from another world. I mean, he's yeah. not credited director, but...
0: But, you know, he he had, you know, someone who can go from something that's, you know, quite a hardcore Western, mm. Rio Bravo, to yeah. to a, a what amounts to, you know, a prototype romantic comedy, a screwball comedy, if yep. you will. Um um, you know that's that sh- that shows a, a real range. I mean, I don't really know what Howard Hawks' background was. Whether a lot, I don't know whether a lot of those actors
1: uh, directors came from theatre. I I get the feeling he's one of the ones who came up through film right. ranks. Uh, I know that his style was very collaborative. Right, he would often uh, allow actors to improvise lines if you know he wasn't happy with what was in the script. And I can't remember which film he's working. On. I think it's Rio Bravo they told a story about how he wasn't happy with a line and he uh, was asking people... He was asking, you know, the actors what they thought they should do and he literally turned to someone who was, like, using a mop or something. One of the the guys who was just, like, there cleaning up and he says, you know, what do you think? You know, he he would he was the sort of person who would just ask everyone around just to see get as many ideas flowing as possible so i take it back he's not responsible for all these classics <laughs> it was the janitor It was the janitor, along, just like scooby-doo
0: <laughs> so after after the studio system collapsed uh film lesson 101 uh late 50s early 60s yeah right for studio system collapsed um the 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 Studios have no longer vertically integrated distribution, it's all spread out, monopolies commission, blah, 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 paramount decree, uh, that's your film studies lesson done there, um, and then we get into the kind of, uh, the new Hollywood era, mm. which redefines the role of, uh, director, uh,
1: in what way, Ed? Uh, well, it kind of, uh, takes the idea of the director as the author of the, work and kind of puts it front and center as opposed to like i mean the whole auteur theory that was proposed by the cashier de cinema you know that was kind of uh <laughs> ca- that Andre, Andre Bazin yeah. is it that Bazin that Bazin yeah um all all of that stuff that's kind of that that was more uh, a theory that was applied to existing filmmakers you know the idea that a filmmaker could have his own stamp was kind of retroactively retroactively added to people who maybe didn't make films with that first in mind, mm-hmm. uh, that was often the case. If you see the interviews that Peter Bogdanovich did with John Ford, for example, or or Howard Hawks, he would bring up that idea that they were advancing a particular artistic vision, and both of them more or less just told him that that was nonsense. They just made films. Yeah. You know, John Ford's famous thing was just saying, "I'm John Ford and I make movies." You know, that was kind of how he viewed himself. It's,
0: it's very difficult to. Think that though when you watch a John Ford film, mm. and if you know a little bit about John Ford and his kind of personal politics, yeah, his films suddenly have. you c- I don't think you can say that. I think he's yeah. he's probably being modest.
1: Did he wear an eye patch, John Ford? He had an eye patch towards uh, the end of his life. Oh, fair play. Um, i
0: Always like an eye patch. Where <laughs> Fritz Lang was another eye patch. Yeah, that era. was the,
1: the the when directors stopped having eye patches was when cinema went down the pan. Really, we did. Um, but I think uh, it it stops being, it stops necessarily being an idea that's applied to films retroactively and starts becoming the driving force between how directors make their films. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first generation of filmmakers who grow up, having grown up watching films and being hugely cine literate people like Martin Scorsese, Peter Bogdanovich, Steven Spielberg, people who just constantly watched films and, and were aware of. The idea that a director is someone who has, you know, a distinct way of creating
0: films, and they were personal films on a large scale, weren't mm. they? Yes. I mean, in the uh, in the kind of late 60s, early 70s, Easy Rider is cited, or Bonnie and Clyde is cited as being the, the, the thing that kind of kicked all this off, where you know the old genres, the westerns, the musicals, they weren't really making the money anymore. And, and Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde were so they were giving money to these kind of young kids who were uh, you know making films in a different way that had mm-hmm. ideas that were personal. Um, there was also it was also the kind of the rise of the writer director as well, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. A, as a kind of
1: force on on their own. Yeah. Um, well, th- these things had obviously existed before, but they were often they would be like exceptions, like someone like Preston Sturgis, who mm-hmm. was obviously a writer director and was the, the first person to win an Oscar for writing. Um, but uh, they were kind of people like that were kind of uh, predicated on being successes. Yeah. He was allowed to be a writer-director who had pretty much complete control until his films stopped making money, at which point people just kind of like, start taking them away, recutting them, renaming them and stuff like that. Or you'd see people on the fringes, people like you know John Cassavetes who would take acting jobs uh, to raise money. To and, his own little yeah, and, films. Yeah, and make little films, personal films on the side. Sam or Fuller. Sam Fuller, who did studio jobs and then would uh, fund things like you know crazy-ass films like... Uh, shot corridor or the naked kiss on his own or park row on his own dime basically mm. uh they weren't the big studios didn't want to touch these those sort of films but during the 60s and 70s those are exactly the sort of films that start coming out of studios so uh, harking back to the last podcast we have uh,
0: late 70s uh, some very high profile failures Um, And with the emergence of blockbuster cinema like Jaws, Star Wars, that kind of caper leads on to the 80s where the kind of producer uh, in many ways is uh, the kind of the super high powered producer like a Don Simpson or Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm. Those guys um, kind of come to the fore and Jerry Bruckheimer establishes himself as a producer whose name goes above the title rather than the director or the
1: actor. In some ways hearkening back to sort of an older style of filmmaking when it would be like David O'Sell's yeah. presents, yeah. you know, or uh, where the name of the uh, the producer would be, you know, first above the title and then everyone else.
0: Yeah. So it was, uh, and then kind of the 90s saw a kind of resurgence of that writer-director uh, caper, I guess mm-hmm. I like to call it, with the, the Sundance boom. Um, and then now we end
1: up, where, where, where are we now, Ed? I think there's a mixture of the two really because i think that uh producers still have a stranglehold on the industry but i think that people for for writer director or, or just people who are more artistically minded they either learn to navigate the studio system to get what they want by making successful films mm-hmm. uh george
0: clooney being a very good example of that it, yeah he it, it being a director who does one for them one for you steven Soderbergh as well i mean obviously yeah. that's his mentor really or, isn't uh, he? He does a similar thing. guillermo
1: del toro yeah. does that as well um or you know even you know arguably someone like christopher nolan uh doesn't do one for me one for them so much as he does uh he's he's kind of built a reputation on hugely successful films to the level where he can do more or less what he wants even with you know the sort of properties that you would expect producers to be very hands on about you know like the batman films yeah. where you would expect similar to what sort of marvel have done with their works where you kind of feel the hand of the producer very heavily on those films mm. you would expect the same sort of thing to be done with batman but it you can there is a distinctiveness to the the Nolan trilogy of Batman films that I don't think there necessarily is on some of the Marvel films. Um, so, you say so people like Christopher Nolan they can navigate the with the studios because they have the clout. Then you have your Steven Soderberghs who can kind of flip between the two. They yeah. can satisfy their muse with weird digital experiments, and they make uh, Oceans Fifteen. Yeah, or or you you have the people who just totally go the Weird digital. The people who who only sort of make independent films and do very well at it. You know, you, your Paul Thomas Andersons, your Wes Andersons.
0: That said, Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film is funded, kind of in a philanthrop, philanthrop What's that Philan- word?
1: Philanthropic. Philan-
0: philanthropist. <laughs> Some rich woman's giving him loads of money to make the yes,
1: but, that, but that's only because no one
0: else would touch it because it's about science. Yes, Scientology. <laughs> uh, um yeah. So I mean, where does where does he fit into the mould? Because obviously, he did something like there will be blood, which mm. was a massive critical success. I don't know how much money it made. It, it, it made its right. money back, um, but you know, it wasn't m- keeping studios afloat.
1: No, I think that's that's kind of the 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 small, the the independent thing, which which came about because of that sort of movement in the sixties and seventies, which made an audience for that sort of thing. You know, independent film existed before then, but there wasn't the distribution thing that there is for it now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's 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 one of these people who's very much followed his own muse. I don't think there's, with the exception of his first film, which was, you know, cut and, and, and mucked around with, he's never really had to kowtow to people uh, because he makes films for relatively little money. Uh, I don't know
0: um, Magnolia and Boogie Nights Were both pretty expensive films Magnolia Mm -hmm. was a very expensive film Was it quite expensive? Yeah It was up there With like 60-70 million quid I think it was Wow really I know that both It was a very Very long shoot
1: I guess so I know that both um, Punch Drunk Love And There Will Be Blood Both cost 25 million dollars Wow Which amazes me When you consider The difference in scale Between those two films Yeah And makes me wonder If the reason Punch Drunk Love Cost that much Was because of Adam Sandler
0: yeah, I mean, I would have thought he'd have done it for scale, but you know, well, he's, he's Adam Sandler.
1: Yeah, his his career either side of it doesn't suggest to me that he has much of a muse that he wants to you know let out and and uh. uh it's a shame. She, he's good in that film. He's very good in that film. He's very good in Rain Over Me as well. That's a he's a he's, he can be very good, but he essentially enjoys uh, conning people out of a lot of money. <laughs>
0: Yes, by playing all the characters at once. Yeah. Um I'd like to see I would have liked to have seen um he was down to play the Eli Roth role in Inglorious Bastards, wasn't he?
1: Well Adam Sandler was.
0: Yeah. Originally. Oh wow. And I fucking hate Eli Roth in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, he's
1: a he's, that's a very bad performance.
0: And he's a director, he shouldn't be acting. Yeah. There are rare exceptions when directors can act. Look at this yep. segue here, look at nice. this. Um is um, you know, the the rise of the kind of uh, director star and it's not unusual for actors to direct films. Uh, Gene Kelly used to do it all the time, uh, but he had a, a Stanley Donnan. I think was he a choreographer or was he more he, the filmmaking side? I'm I not think sure. he was he
1: was a he was a choreographer, but he was also because you know, what didn't he originate West Side Story on the stage? Past. i'm pretty sure he was he was the original director of west side story on stage i okay. think he had a, i think he had a theater background as well
0: right okay but like with uh i mean clint eastwood is by far the most successful one i can think of unless you can think of anyone more successful as being a i mean awesome wells probably yeah but he, he did not right. he
1: yeah his his weren't of these sort of uh he didn't make as many films as clint eastwood no overall and i don't think he had the the lot, he, he didn't have the success. So he
0: starred in a lot of his own films. He starred in a he? lot of his own films, yeah, and a Did lot of he, them he, are great. Yeah, a lot of them are good. Um, but Clint Eastwood kind of made the mold for that, didn't he? In the, he didn't start directing films until he was already a well-established star. Yeah, s- he started with uh, Play, Play Misty, Misty for, for me, me. Um, with um, the mum from Arrested Development as a yeah. stalker. Um, but um, someone like him, he's he's been able to do that for decades. And I honestly can't think of anyone else who's who's done that as well. I mean, John Cassavetes, you mentioned beforehand. Yeah. He wouldn't star in his own films. He no. would do the films, he'd do like a Rosemary's Baby and then go and make something yeah. Something off his own back, which looked like it cost 50p, but, you know, didn't, it had a great cast and, you know, he, he was very much uh, the the godfather or grandfather of uh, of independent film in that sense. Mm. Um, but can you think of anyone else? Uh, what other notable actor, director, can you think uh, of? Woody of? Allen.
1: Leaps to mind. Oh, yeah, that guy. Uh... I think he, 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 it sometimes could be hard to remember that because a lot he also has done a lot of his films where he's not the star. Yeah, um, he had a big gap between Scoop in 2006 and his most recent film, To Rome with Love, which is the first one he's actually acted in. Oh, he's in that, is he? Yeah, he's he's got a, he's a small part in that. Um, but for most of the sort of forty odd years that he's been uh, a director, he has uh, he's been the star of his own films. I think he's 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 uh, similar to Clint Eastwood in that, but th- that's even taking a step further because Clint Eastwood doesn't write his films. He, mm-hmm. you know, he finds the scripts, he develops the films, and he, he directs them and often stars in them. But uh, Woody Allen writes and directs and you know often starred in his. So that's going even further in terms of like you know actor director sort of superstar things.
0: Um, uh, yeah, and that's someone who has complete control over mm. their project from conception to execution. Yeah. Um Takeshi Kitano is another one
1: I can think yes, of who stars yeah. in in a lot of his own films. Again, uh, established star before he turned to directing because he was uh, obviously a big name in Japan and uh, you know and, and had acted in a bunch of stuff before then. Yeah. Um you don't see it as much these days, do you? No, not really because I think it's uh maybe Sort of actors who have who established in as as actors before they decide to move into doing directing, kind of feel well, that it's too. I wish much. Quentin
0: Tarantino would do it less.
1: Yes, uh, maybe they feel as if it's too much of a strain. Too much because it seems like, like I've I've just made like little comedy shorts in which I've acted and directed mm-hmm. against my will sometimes yeah. more because can't get anyone else to be in them, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a pain in the ass <laughs> trying yeah. to do them both. So maybe they feel that they'd. Do better if they were off screen, like uh, for example, um, Paddy Considine with uh, Tyrannosaur, his his debut from last year. You could easily see him in the Peter Mullen role, like he'd be a younger character, but you know, he could have acted in that and you know, handled the intensity of that character, but he opted not to because I think he wanted to focus on the visuals and the overall sort of tone of it, really.
0: Uh, I'll tell you an example of a modern day. Actor, director, who's doing it again this year is Ben Affleck. Yes, because he was in uh what's it called the, uh, town. the town. uh Presumably Casey wasn't available, so he cast <laughs> the other Affleck that he knew. um But he's kind of taking on that role of of writer, actor, director, isn't he? He's uh, he doesn't write him on his own, does he?
1: He often co writes with with other people, people uh, or is I think everything he's done so far has also been an adaptation of a the first two were adaptations of novels i think is new one argo maybe an adaptation of an jason and the article Hm? jason and the argonauts no uh, it's Shame. an adaptation i think of a of a article of a really news article rather than a, maybe it may have been expanded into a book but i'm pretty sure it's an, uh, of an article
0: um how do you think ben affleck's doing with his career at the minute because i thought bon- gone baby gone was was rubbish right um and for the very reason um that um the plot's quite stupid, right? Um, and the ultimate motivations of the villainous character in it, yeah, or the person who turns out I don't know what they were fucking thinking, yeah. If you break it down too much, but yeah. I liked the elements of the performance, I liked Amy Ryan, I liked Casey Affleck, and I liked the fact that John Ashton from Beverly Hills Cop was in it, and Midnight Run was in it, um, in a small part, but um, I very much more enjoyed the town, yeah, uh, although he had it was just heat in Boston, yeah. Uh, pretty much, right down to a a couple of scenes that were exactly the same.
1: Yeah. No, I I think he's... uh, I I liked Gone Baby Gone, but I'd read the um, Kenzie and Gennaro books by Dennis Lehane beforehand, and uh, so I think I was probably viewing it more interesting seeing how they would carry the tone across. Right. And also, you have that thing in the back of the mind, if you've read the book, you kind of understand what's happening more. So in the book, the motivation for the character behind them all is actually gone into in reasonable amount of detail. Right. Whereas in the film, it's kind of... happens, and then that's the end of the film, which is obviously problematic. Um, Another modern
0: um, actor, writer, director, multi-hyphenate, who's doing a considerably more interesting job, I think, than Ben Affleck, is uh, the aforementioned George Clooney. Yes. Who, uh, whilst his films... You possibly could criticise for being a little hand wringing and uh, mm. liberal wank fantasies. Yeah, um, yeah he's doing some alright stuff.
1: Yeah, I think of his, of the four films, four yeah, four films that he's made so that far. Can count for, yeah. I think he's only made one genuinely great one, which is Good Night and Good Luck. That's pretty good. That uh, I think that Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is interesting and it's has some very
0: strong moments. Certainly over directed that one. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of visual ticks in that. Yeah,
1: Leatherheads isn't much. P- Good, it's not, is it? uh And Eyes of March is kind of like yeah. not
0: great, should have been a lot better given the cast, yeah, and the I, source material. Yeah,
1: I think it, I, I think his, uh, my opinion of him as a director probably rests on whatever he does next because at the moment it seems like he's doing Spider Man 2. Ah, oh, no. it seems like he's uh, someone who may who got lucky once and like this uh, got on the source material that's perfect for him. Because, obviously, of his politics, yeah, the story of Edward R. Moreau plays into that, but also because his father was a newsman and he mm. actually went on the set of the Moreau programme when he was younger and stuff like that. So it, that was kind of a perfect intersection of everything that he likes and he knows about. And uh, everything either side of that maybe isn't, and maybe he needs to do something that he's more interested in. Do you know what he's doing next? I don't know. I don't think he's got anything lined up. Hmm. Um I know like Eyes of March was something he was doing for for ages for and ages and yeah. yeah. Well IMDB
0: it afterwards. Um okay, so uh we've covered actor directors, all that kind of stuff. What about um films that we can think of that deal with um the directorial process, the 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 um what it is to make a film, um what the artistic struggles are, um that's you know quite a you know a rich vein of of uh films have come out yeah. about that um what sticks out to you as being the kind of best ones
1: uh most of the ones i thought that were really great were were documentaries because i think it's it's easier to focus on the act of directing in that than in a narrative because in a narrative it's kind of got to be about something broader a lot of the time mm-hmm. you know it's often as part like a. Uh, in Broken Embraces the Pedro Almodovar film from a couple of years ago uh, the main character in that is a, a director who's like directed lots of Pedro Almodovar-esque comedies mm. in the uh, 80s and um you kind of get a sense of his method and the way he works but it's really more in service of telling this mystery story of what happened to his his lover played by Penélope Cruz um but you know uh, a, c- a couple of examples of narrative films you've got uh, the bad and the beautiful which Mm -hmm. is a film by vincent uh, minnelli uh, which is largely about backstabbing and the the way in which a producer played by uh, kirk douglas destroyed all of the relationships in his life with these people whilst at the same time making them all huge successes and the scene that really there's there's lots of scenes of the people on the set making films together and there's lots of really good stuff in it about the way in which collaborators kind of come together to try and help resolve issues or all the uh, tensions that arise on set from disagreements. But the, the bit that really sticks out is one where they're working on a horror film, which is very clearly modeled on cat people. Right. Um, and they've seen the costumes that the person has to wear and they realize that they're terrible and it's not going to scare anyone. And there's this really good scene where, uh, Kirk Douglas and, um, Whoever it is who plays the director, they're kind of like furrowing their brows trying to figure out what they're gonna do. And they kind of suddenly realize that the way to do it is to not show the cats mm-hmm. and to like have it be off screen. And it's a really good kind of depiction of uh an artistic breakthrough but also like limitations. Uh and but the the, the big film that came to mind for me of depi- of films about directors is uh Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is about uh Writer's block, it's about director's block, really. And, you know, it's the main character played by um, Marcello Mastroianni. i am um, probably butchered that name. Um, yeah. Is uh, He's a director. He's been contracted to make this big epic sci-fi film, and he has no idea what he's going to do with it. And he, it's it's all about the ways in which uh, a an artist tries to come to terms with him, himself as a person, but also the people around him. And, and uh, it's got, there's kind of like a thing about are destroying a real person a person's life and stuff like that but um it's it's very good in being about the pressures on directors as people who are basically in charge of every aspect of a film and how kind of overwhelming it can be
0: i think my favorite film about directing films mm-hmm. uh, narrative wise is uh, living in oblivion the uh tom de yes is his name? i get, hit, get confused with him and uh don demello the <laughs> picture, theatrical theatrical director. director um uh, and there will Bring be pre- the pre- precisely three people who get that reference uh who listens to this and two of them are me and ed mm-hmm. um uh, but yes um living in oblivion the film about the perils pitfalls and a myriad of problems that uh, encounters the low budget independent film uh, maker, and that was made during that whole kind of Sundance boom. And uh, for those who haven't seen it, I would recommend seeing. It's a, great. A really great. It started off as a short film. The first, third. the first third is is a short film they made, and then they decided to kind of string it out longer. And uh, I've. Uh worked on films, uh, I've worked on low budget films and I've worked on films that have got you know millions of pounds worth of budget and the problems are so universal <laughs> that and they are they always kind of occur. It's it's just absolutely spot on at naming those and it comes from a place that I imagine um uh have I say his name right again? I think it's DeSillo. DeSillo, he he did the Doors documentary recently, yeah, didn't yeah, he? he did, uh, yeah, yeah. Not done anything for a while, and then. Did yeah, that. but um, yeah, he uh, you can tell that he's been in that room with those actors, and I mean, there's the uh, one of my favorite characters in any film ever is in Living in Oblivion, Chad Palomino, yeah, character, the one who is may or may not be modeled on Brad Pitt, yeah, um, uh, the kind of the Hollywood a lister or the the Hollywood star who's uh, kind of um. Slimming stock it. is on the rise yeah. who decided to do an independent film for some kind of credibility yeah um who is is quite dense and um doesn't really know what it is to improvise the bit where he's being asked to improvise that scene with Catherine Keener is yeah absolutely fantastic um but yeah no that's that's a really really good film coming from a completely different place than Nate and a half does yeah. uh, talking about a different uh kind of type of film, I guess. You mentioned um, documentaries doing a good job of uh, showing the artistic process. Uh, I've got one that springs to mind um, which is The Five Obstructions which is a uh, kind of uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's uh, a Lars von Trier film, so Mm -hmm. it's automatically sadistic sadistic, and uh, a little bit off-kilter it's fair to say Um, slightly uh, insane, (laughs) Um, where um, Mr. von Trier um, Larry, Larry, as, as, I
1: like, as we like to call him.
0: Yeah, uh, Lala von Trier, um, one of the Wachowski brothers. Um, he gets uh, one of his favourite directors, a man called Jorgen Leth, who made a seminal short film called The Human the Body or something. What's it
1: called? The something, the something Human?
0: Perfect Human. The Perfect Human. He made a film called The Perfect Human, which was kind of like a very arty short film. He made it in the 60s or whatever, and it was a very influential yeah. film in the kind of Scandinavian scene. You know, that Scandinavian scene that yeah. they have now. Um, and Lars von Trier sets uh, Mr. Leth the um, challenge of remaking the film five times um, with various obstacles... Or obstructions placed before him. So, um, the first one is: uh, is it each no shot, maybe longer than twelve frames, and you have to shoot it in Cuba? Yeah, and he sends him off. And what you get, in, and then the next one is you have to shoot it in the worst place on Earth. Yeah, and uh, you, you have to be the only actor in the film. Yeah. Uh, so, animation, animation. He has to do one, um, and it's a really great film. Especially my favorite moment of the film is when he's Larry is very, very displeased with uh, Jorgen Leth's attempt at doing the one where he shoots it in the red light district in mumbai yeah and he decides to punish him by saying that the next obstruction is you make the film without any obstructions whatsoever right and Jorgen leth just says oh you bastard (laughs) why are you doing because you know that's 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 impossible he's already made the film yeah you know he's already done it and without any restrictions or anything it's a it's you know it's it's, is it a different film is it the same film? Mm. It's, it's really interesting and it's it's a lovely way of 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 um watching two directors and their own processes uh being worked out in a very unusual way
1: yeah definitely um and he is great at uh depicting the creative the creative process sort of from beginning to end really because you do see the making of each film and then you do get to see Bits of each film. Do you get to see? I suppose each film's like a shorter version of the original.
0: Yeah. Over the whole film, you see the whole of a perfect human in bits. They mm. show it in bits, then they? It's a really very well edi- edited film. The way it puts it together. Yeah. Because it could have just shown you the the film at the start and then shown you remaking yeah. it, but it, it unfolds it as it goes. Um But it's a very, it's a very interesting f- film in the sense that you watch a man revisiting something that's defined mm. them. Yeah. And there was a, there was. Big rumours last year or two years ago that uh, Lars von Trier was going to do a Five Obstructions with Martin Scorsese. Wasn't yeah, he? Like, I think
1: it was confirmed at the same Cannes Film Festival. Way made a bit of a fool of himself uh, uh, because he did he say because he joked about, about Nazis. Nazis. Yeah, he made an ill an ill phrased joke about about Hitler, uh, which. People then led to say that they were accusing him of being a Nazi, which I think is more an indication of how humourless people at Cannes are.
0: Yeah, that's a bit of a leap, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, the people who wrote LOLO aren't Nazis. <laughs> that's true. And they make very funny jokes about him. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so,
1: I mean, is, is he is he allowed back at Cannes now? He is persona non grata, so he's not allowed to... He's, which is essentially a ban, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he went there this I year. I would
0: bloody love to be Persona Non Grata somewhere. He did, he did... Uh, At my local spa.
1: He did put it on the posters for, um there were like promotional poster uh, of uh, postcards even, for Melancholia, the film he was promoting there. And there were pictures of the cast... Uh, and then there was one which was a picture of, of Lars von Trier, and in the bottom corner was like a little greyed-out circle, and if you looked at it closed, it just said, Persona non grata can, like it was an award. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah, but,
0: but um, yeah, he's, he's
1: he's saying he's not going to do any more interviews or anything now, he's just going to release, his films will get released, he won't do any press for them, which I'm not, enti- I, I'm not entirely sure how likely that is, that he
0: will keep quiet. Is it likely that... Uh, he will do the Scorsese thing because Scorsese is a man uh, we've had this conversation before I think he's in need of a bit of a, a giddy a, up a
1: kickstart yeah mm. I think uh, if he does do it it won't be for a while because there's too much of a of sort of bad uh, blood kicking around it but also or, or there's too much of a stink kicking around it because of the can thing but also because um, Scorsese has a fairly full plate these days because he's constantly constantly moving on between projects. It's the sort of thing where he would need to take some time out in order to make, you know, Taxi Driver five times over again or, or whatever. So I think it would... Uh, if if it were to happen, it might be might not be for a while, unless they're secretly doing it now. Um, they could be. Which they could be, because uh, Von Trier is so out of the limelight at the moment. Yeah. But and they
0: both could be dressed as Nazis. Exactly. Yeah, that'd be in very poor taste. Uh, what are other... Uh, documentaries can you think of um, that really highlight the struggle or the uh, the process with which uh, directors go through 12 uh, months?
1: There's two um, about Terry Gilliam films mm-hmm. uh, one of which is called the hamster, Fac- the hamster Factor which is about the making of 12 Monkeys.
0: And the title refers to an incident during the shooting where I believe he was unsatisfied that a hamster wasn't running around in a wheel and spent a whole day doing it and in the end you can't see it
1: yeah it's like it's a very small part of one shot in the film mm-hmm. in which Bruce Willis is naked in his cell in the future and there's a, a hamster running around in a ball and it took them a whole day to try and get it right because the hamster wasn't running right and so that's all about that's all about uh, Terry Gilliam struggling to make a film that actually gets made uh and then the same two directors who directed that also came along and directed uh, a making of of his film, The uh, Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which ended up not getting made. Mm-hmm. But the documentary is called Lost in La Mancha.
0: It was interesting because the Hamster Factor was not released theatrically. It was a extra, extra. on the DVD, but it yeah. actually, t- it's I mean, almost better than Twelve Monkeys itself.
1: Mm, it's a whole, it's a full ninety minutes as well. But that one, they're both they're really interesting contrasts because um, the Hamster Factor is all about. Uh, Gilliam working within a studio, having to deal with producers, and you see how someone who has a incredibly distinct artistic vision uh, struggles to express it in an environment that perhaps isn 't a hundred percent geared towards his whims and someone
0: who 's also got a less less than stellar <laughs> financial record
1: yes or, or uh, and, and uh, is somewhat uncompromising i mm. think it, would, it should be said about there's a him. great
0: bit in there with him and. Bruce Willis and they're it's actually a very good um, it says a lot about Bruce Willis and says a lot about Terry Gilliam and they're having a, a discussion about a bit where he's got to get something out of a boot or he's got to push someone into a boot or something yeah and Bruce Willis is like I, I, I don't think my character would do that mm. and Terry Gilliam saying well you know I want you to do that and Bruce Willis is like well I don't agree yeah but I'll do it anyway yeah um, it's it's exactly what you were saying. The director does the, the star does their work and then hands it over to a director. Yeah, they have to kind of trust. There's a trust relationship that goes. The, the The actors give their trust to the director, and it's up to the director to make the best film out of it.
1: Yeah, and there's also it's also one of those. Uh, it's a red making of documentary that goes from start to finish. It goes from the pre production through to actually ending with, like, Terry Gilliam going on The Tonight Show or or something. And you get to see also the role the director plays in the marketing materials in helping to choose the Mm taglines, which includes the funniest thing I've seen in a non-comedy ever. Go on. Which is where they're looking at potential taglines, and one of them that is shown is, our future is in the hands of a man who has none and Terry Gilliam says, that sounds like he has no hands. He <laughs> <laughs> does. That's instantly what I thought.
0: There's a great bit in um, Lost in La Mancha where after all the problems that are beset... I mean, how he doesn't kill himself during Lost in La Mancha or the making of uh, Don Quixote, I will never know. There's a great bit where you know they've gone through so many problems and the- there's a bit where I think they start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and he says, I can't make this film anymore. I don't... I- I- my incentive and my, my vision for this film is just gone, as if mm. it was and that was a lovely thing that you, that a filmmaker has this uh, idea in this film in them for a short period of time and then yeah. it loses its, because, you know, films are, you, you know, you climb up a mountain to get them, fitzgeraldo is a great metaphor for making the film the, this kind of huge effort to get somewhere and then it's, you at least you've done it and then you can kind of work on it, and you know, he'd, he'd gone through all this trouble and, and got ten minutes of footage in the can, his lead actor was dying of spinal injury or something mm-hmm. and um yeah, was, everything was going wrong um, and he, yeah he just I don't have the film in me anymore yeah
1: yeah it's, it's a great it's it's a quite a tragic film in that regards you know and that's why I think it's it's good that those two films exist because they do offer sort of nice counterbalances of when things go how difficult things are when they go right mm-hmm. <laughs> versus how difficult they are when things go wrong or they just don't go yeah at all Exactly I mean, how how little they got done is it like considering how long it was shooting, you know, you see... But what what little you see of the film looks really impressive, and, mm. you know, the design of the stuff and the ideas that Gilliam's kind of, like, throwing out there just makes it sound like it would be a really fascinating film to watch. And all that you really see of it is, like, the last shot of the film where uh, it's three giants running at the camera, and then that's the end of it. <laughs> uh, another film, um, on a similar thing, because he mentioned uh, Fitzcarraldo, A Burden of Dreams is a very good a uh, documentary about a film that got made almost uh against the better judgment of everyone involved which is all about the making of uh Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo uh and that's a good it's almost like a Herzog film in itself because mm-hmm. Herzog films are all about man in extremis essentially and uh in that one it's about uh a lunatic who <laughs> who decides that he wants to make a film in the middle in the middle of the Brazilian jungle. And make, or a, make a film
0: about someone doing something extraordinary, which is drag a paddle steamer up a mountain and actually do that for real.
1: And actually do that in a jungle. Film in places where there's um, a war very yeah. nearby mm-hmm. uh, film about an hour's worth of the film with different cast and then have to abandon it and then come
0: back. I always forget that bit of Fitzcarraldo's... uh,
1: You see uh, Jason Robards and Mick Jagger.
0: Fucking hell. (laughs) That would have been a different film. (laughs) How far did they get in with Jagger and Robards? Because Robards, I can see, but Jagger Jagger. what?
1: I think they got reasonably far into it. I, I mean, they filmed... I think they filmed a lot of the stuff that's not on the river. Right. And then it all fell apart before they could go quite far down the river.
0: Um, I've not seen Burden of Dreams. Is is this the film... Because there's two, isn't there? There's, there's Burden of Dreams and My Best Fiend, the two films mm. about Herzog and Kinski. That, yeah. Is, is this one where you see him saying he's got a gun and he's going to kill him?
1: I don't think you see it in that one, because I think that's on Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Oh, okay, where yeah. he be threatened to shoot him. Yeah. But you do see them on set together... Uh, kinski screaming at him and herzog just being very stony faced yeah. which obviously makes kinski even madder but also uh, herzog explains how that was a tactic that he would sometimes use mm-hmm. to because kinski would be too energetic in his performance and he wanted someone to be more subdued so he would get him really angry so he would kind of be exhausted right when they actually went to shoot the scene
0: so that's kind of two lunatics really isn't it in a, in, yeah. a, in, a, in a situation governed by lunacy in the most uh, insane part of the world um, so yeah that is uh, yeah, a Herzog film in itself Yeah, um, American Movie is a film I very much like I harp on about it all the time I picked out in my best documentaries when we did the, the Truth episode a while ago um, a film about someone who has literally no talent whatsoever <laughs> trying to make the great American film against all the odds and that is... Um, very much like Living in Oblivion. Uh, for Living in Oblivion, a film about making a film with very little money. Yeah. And um, American movie, a film about making a film with no money, no real script, not really much of a clue. Yeah. Um, but still manages to be a, a triumph of, of the will. No, that's something else. Of the human spirit. Of the
1: triumph of the human spirit. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So um, well, that's got less um, fascist connotations.
0: Yeah. Lars von Trier wouldn't be interested. Um uh, de- uh, depictions of directors, in particular, in films, we've kind of touched on. What about when directors turn up in other films as actors? Mm. I really like Martin Scorsese as an actor. Yeah, but he turns up in like Quiz Show, and he's in Taxi Driver twice. I think once by accident. Yeah, um, well, once in the back of the cab, he replaced another actor, didn't he? But yeah. he'd already been in it. Yeah, when he has that like cameo in the slow motion bit, so it's a bit odd. But I like Martin Scorsese as an actor. Um, why did we mention Robert Redford in the old actor-director? Oh, and Warren yeah. Beatty, the two guys yeah. who were you know, doing it on a big scale. I mean, they don't really do it. Warren Beatty doesn't do anything anymore, does he?
1: He's got a film out this year. I can't remember is what it is. Is
0: it that one, The Town and Country? <laughs> no. Oh, no, not that one.
1: I know Warren, look, Warren Beatty has been talking for about a year or so about doing another Dick Tracy film. Oh, brilliant. Um, which would be his return. But I think that's more because... Uh, something I think the rights are coming up for uh the rights are coming up for sale again. I think if he says it's one of those things where he might be saying it so he can keep hold of the rights so that someone else doesn't make a film. Oh, okay. In the same way that, you know, They watch, don't want
0: to damage his legacy of that yeah. one film he made twenty years ago that no one cares yeah,
1: about. It's a bit it's a bit of a weird situation. Obviously he hasn't been in a film in eleven years, but I think uh he's uh he's he's he might be thinking about getting back into it, or he might just be happy shagging Annette Benning, you know who wouldn't be happy with that
0: mm, my girlfriend wouldn't um, <laughs> um, uh, I think Warren Beatty is someone who would who would be awesome in a kind of a tarantino film mm. not in a kind of stunt was way that
1: they 've done he was originally he was one of the original choices for Bill in kill Bill was he yeah he was one of the uh tarantino when after pretty much every 70s actor right. that he could go after. And Warren be- I think Warren Beatty was, like, his number one. Right. But Beatty was still... He, he'd he gone into his retirement after Town and Country. Right. And uh, he didn't want to be in it, basically. Right. So I think... Yeah, but, you know, you're right. He would be, like, one of the perfect choices of that older. Uh, you know actor who's not been in anything for a while and just shows up and you know lays waste to people that like he would have been a perf. he'd be perfect in a tarantino we saw sort of film in that role um
0: another uh i just mentioned scorsese turning up in films what about one of the greatest director cameos as an actor of all time uh john houston
1: in chinatown that's a fantastic performance by him uh, um, as one of the most truly diabolical people in <laughs> cinema history. Yeah, uh, monstrous, yeah. monstrous figure. There was a there was a thing uh, on uh, for Father's Day. Uh, TCM in America was running. This going to be dark. No, they were running a a a marathon of bad dad films. Yeah, that's right, well, that's up there. And that was the thing. It was like the other options were comedies and things what, like Home that. Alone. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't. It was, a, it was a, like, I can't remember what the other ones were, but they were things like, I, they, you know, something like, you know, National Lampoon's Vacation, something like that, where it's like, I, can I, oh, he's he's a bad dad, <laughs> and then Chinatown was one of them. And I saw that. A and bad thought, Dad
0: was the original title for Chinatown.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I saw that, and I thought that that makes sense. Yeah, I can't think of a worse in dad the, in films in the overwhelming theme, but in comparison to the other films that you are pairing it with, that is a little. That's a touch darker. Yeah. It
0: was was Dogtooth on there as well. <laughs> wow, that is a bad dad. He's a bad dad. He's a bad, big bad dad. But yeah, he's... Uh, and also, his. Yeah, I mean, he directed his own dad in, in... Treasure of Sierra Madre. Yeah. And I, if you can correct me, the only instance of a son directing their dad to an Oscar.
1: Yes, he's also, I think, the only case of a father directing his child to an Oscar as well. Because... Uh, uh Angelica Houston won hers for Prizzy's Honor, which is a John Houston joint.
0: Ah, it's a John Houston joint. <laughs> yeah. So he
1: is uh so they're a family of Oscar winners in which he's kind of the focal point. It's nepotism
0: gone, bloody mad <laughs> is what it is. There is a notable person who who crops up in films quite a lot, who's a director who's quite famous, quite But is that Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. He turns up in all his own films and given how grim some of his films are <laughs> Still managed to get away with a comedy cameo, yeah, in practically every single one of his films what 's his cameo in vertigo because that film's pretty fucking dark
1: uh isn 't it him just uh, walking his dog or is that in the birds? Oh, that might be the birds I, I know the best one of his cameos because uh of the nature of the film it 's in is uh, his cameo in lifeboat, a film that takes place entirely on a boat. Uh, does he play it, a life preserver he appears at one point someone opens a paper and on it is a weight loss advert and he is the before <laughs> brilliant <laughs> standing next to a much thinner man uh, which I always think is for uh, for inventiveness it's his best but it's also it's quite a funny gag
0: yeah very funny gag
1: well, that's it it's weird
0: because he puts gags in films that are kind of quite yeah in 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 the the example of vertigo a kind of incredibly dark psychosexual nightmare yeah Hmm.
1: or like um there's one in uh i think it's stage fright where he's like walking on a street in london and he does a comedy double take (laughs) uh um one of the main characters uh and again that's a that's a mystery that's about murder about Mm. uh wrong wrong um Mistaken identity, which is obviously a theme that's in pretty much all of his films, but you know that's just kind of like a f- he gives himself a little gag where he just kind of like
0: wait what can't fucking resist it can he that yeah, guy God. Hey Ed, guess what? What? It's time for the top ten list. Yes. And um, you've not heard this yet, but I have made a top ten jingle. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Here we go.
1: Top
0: ten. What do you think to that? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I've
1: I spent literally minutes on that. No oh in that contents it's great. Oh okay, awesome. If you'd spent uh, if you'd spent like a whole morning I would then have...
0: that would have been a waste of time slash life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but uh, for a minute, fine. Fine. Um, well, we are going to run down a top ten of. We were going to do our favourite directors, but that's just too bloody easy.
1: No, I decided to make it really difficult
0: yeah, for you. I know it's been, it's been it's almost been next to impossible. So, Ed, what is our top
1: ten list this our, week? Our top ten, rather than talk about our, our top ten directors, which actually probably would be just as difficult. Because how do you how do you narrow it down? I to only the top know 10? three directors. Oh, fine. <laughs> the okay. two of them are
0: the Coen Brothers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said. Uh, we should look to kind of look to the future now and sort of to talk about five directors who have only made one film mm-hmm. um, who we are either excited to see Make more films to see where they go in the future, or uh, who've perhaps made one film and then haven't made any since. So yes. people would like to see come
0: back. So people who are currently on one film, yeah. and they have either got something in the pipeline or they have disappeared off the face sta- of the earth. And we're not going to include any dead people because uh, Charles Lawton would be too easy because yeah, you know he he hit it and quit, as James Brown once said, <laughs> um, with one of the best films of all time, and oh, yeah. then you know never did anything. That was he, that was still waiting.
1: His equivalent of uh, dropping the mic and walking off stage, yep, peace out,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then off he went. so what have you got um I think you've got uh, someone who has made one film we're very excited about the next one
1: yep uh first off, I want uh, also the thing we would uh, kind of distinguish against is uh we we were allowed to talk about people who perhaps made lots of made short films or have done t v work mm-hmm. so uh the top of my list is Lena Dunham. Director Uh, of Tiny Furniture. Good film. uh, Yeah, I like it more. I think last time we spoke about it, I said I didn't hate it. Yeah. I've come to like it more. I've seen it since and and, and liked it a fair deal. But one of the reasons I'm really excited to see what she's done is since she made that film, she's created and starred and written and directed uh, the HBO series Girls, Mm -hmm. which kind of expands on all the great things about Tiny Furniture and extends it even further. She explores uh, that particular milieu of sort of 20 some aimless 20 somethings trying to kind of decide what they want in new york and about you know sex and relationships and stuff and she treats it in a way which is funny and uh unvarnished i think she has a very uh distinct voice in a very male dominated industry which is you know film and television are very they don't they don't really have many female voices no uh and uh, i think that she has a sort of an emotional honesty to her work uh Coupled with a very, very wry wit.
0: And hugely likeable as well, isn't she? Yeah, she's I a mean, really good presence. Tiny, Tiny Furniture is a film, for those who haven't seen it, that features a cast of mostly despicable hipsters. Yeah, um, But she is, as the emotional centre of the film, uh, like a very, very likeable person who's who struggles, if anyone else had them, that they had the real struggle of living in a, uh, you know, kind of Tribeca loft uh, yeah. to, you know, very, very rich people parents having a privilege that mean the only job they can get is working in a upmarket uh restaurant down the road yeah um then you know that that character would be hugely unlikable or a twat yeah. as we like to say but she sells it perfectly
1: and also you know it's it's kind of in that classic mold of uh benjamin from the Graduate. you know mm-hmm. this sort of aimless person who's just uh left university doesn't quite know what they want to do with their life and um, she has a similar quality to uh Dustin Hoffman in that film which is that she's kind of listless and aimless but she's quite charming with mm. it yeah, yeah and i think that she cuz she's only i think she's only 26 yeah now um so she's got you know 40 50 years ahead of her and she's already started out very strong i think you know i think she'll probably stay on tv for a while because you know She's got a HBO series. Who wouldn't want to keep directing that? Um, But I think it'll be interesting to see what she does the next time she actually does make another film. I'm very excited to see what she does next. Mm. Interesting. I'm going to pick someone
0: who's made one film Mm -hmm. who uh, is unlikely to ever make another film again, but there's still a going concern, Um, is Bill Murray. He made the quite brilliant comedy quick change Mm -hmm. in was it the 90s or the 80s i think it's 1990 right so yeah i was close um and he co-directed it with someone else i can't remember who it was i can't either um but it's a really good film Mm. and uh not only has he never directed again but never seemed to express any kind of interest in doing it again and no just kind of (laughs) remains this kind of mysterious hollywood character yeah you know doesn't have a mobile phone and just kind of swans about and yeah, when I guess Wes Anderson sounds the the Murray Claxon. He comes.
1: <laughs> I guess it would probably go against his that that lifestyle that he's built for himself. Really, if you imagine to. him directing a film, can you? Yeah, because under that sort of thing, that's the sort of thing where you do need to have a phone and you do need to be reachable and you do need to take meetings, which are these things that because he's essentially a living legend at this point, he's been able to kind of completely cut out of his life. Mm. He can just kind of like say, uh, "All right, I won't do a film for like three years." Oh yeah, um, I'll do Garfield three. That's yeah, or, or, or like you know, certainly uh, like I think you know, the Garfield films. You know, aside, he has kind of like followed his particular furrow. You know, he's he's he does entirely what he wants possibly because the Garfield movies probably paid him a fair bit of money. I can imagine they did. Um, and he, he has reached a place in his life where he is comfortable and he can just be kind of like, ah, it won't be anything until Wes gives me a call. Yeah. Uh, or that one he's doing this year where he's going to play FDR, which looks like it could be quite fun. Um, Crackers, um, but I think you know he probably, yeah, directing would go against that, really, wouldn't it? Because you'd have to actually get out and take meetings and mm. do all those sort of things.
0: But well, would, but quick change really fits with that kind of dark, comic, mm. sarcastic persona that he has.
1: Yeah, that's okay. the thing as well. Is we've never we we have like the the Bill Murray type of character that he's perfected, mm-hmm. but you never you it's you, you never really know anything about what what he is like really or what his his certainly these days what his his actual humor is because he doesn't write and he doesn't you know create stuff so much as he is introduced into stuff and does his own thing Mm. i think it would be really interesting to see him do another film just to kind of get a better sense of you know what what his style is yeah uh,
0: who have you got next on your list of uh, young bucks? Uh,
1: in uh, stark contrast to Lena Dunham, who started with a $60,000 film that she made in her own house, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to go with Joseph Kaczynski, whose first film was uh, the $170 million uh, Tron Legacy.
0: That's a lot of money to give a young kid.
1: That is. It is, a, it is most likely the most expensive debut film ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly, I don't care for *Tron Legacy* as a film, but I think visually it's pretty astonishing, and it's kind of amazing to think that uh, someone who's never made a film before could do that. But also that they could that there there is some sort of quality about them that could make a studio think, "Yes, <laughs> I'm going to give this kid 170 million dollars so, to make a film."
0: So, backstory of Kasinski: he made the kind of Promos for stuff like Gears of War yeah. and Halo and things like that. The kind of the TV adverts that look like they were very, very expensive films. He yeah. made he made those and then went straight on to Tron Legacy. Yeah, Would which I've not seen. Yeah, even, even I'm not sure who ordered that Tron sequel. Certainly not me.
1: Even considering how like accomplished those adverts are for like the Gears of War games, because I've I've seen them. They are very effective. It's the Mad World one, isn't it? Yeah, they did, yeah. They're just like they're, and I think. The success of those games can probably be largely attributed to him, yeah. really, because they are they are good games. But the thing that really sold them to an audience was these kind of almost jaw dropping adverts. And uh, but even like leaping from that to Tron Legacy, that's a huge difference, really. And uh, he's got from out this year called uh, Oblivion, which is a uh, I believe a post apocalyptic sci fi. Which sounds really intriguing, and i I get the feeling he's the sort of person who would be who could make a really, really good film with a good script and mm-hmm. this is based on a comic he's written, which apparently has been fairly well received so the story but he, seems he's to not
0: just a visual stylist, he does have some yeah he does has some of sort of narrative chops
1: yeah some narrative chops but I think he was, that narrative chops he was probably a little bit hamstrung by the sort of screenplay in the world of Tron Legacy, so I think May, maybe oblivion turns out to be like shit and, and rubbish, but and um, you know that's possible with all films. Um, but I think it'd be—I'm really, really intrigued to see what he does next. Having, you know, come from seemingly nowhere to direct, you know, a a massive film and to kind of of almost written his own ticket at this point, really. Because even though Tron Legacy wasn't a massive hit, it wasn't a colossal flop. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it made its money back. Yeah.
0: Um... I'm going to pick someone who made a film, in stark contrast, going back down the budgetary scale here, Mm -hmm. um, to uh, Kaczynski. He made a film for what's rumoured to be $7,000, I think. Yeah, something like that. I'm uh, talking about a director called Shane Carruth, who made a quite brilliant low-budget film called Primer uh, in 2001, maybe? I think 2004. I want to say
1: 2004
0: sometime between 2001 and 2004 he made a film called Primer which um is a kind of yeah a really bold time travel film um in which people get into a cupboard <laughs> and then appear as themselves later and it's 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 you know quite dense with maths and theories and physics yeah. and stuff a lot of people there's not so much kind of whizzing through the space time continuum like bill and ted there's l- more kind of bleeding ears and kind of uh really dense conversations about Well, Is they haven't got any money, so no. there's you know, they're saying why this cupboard will send you through time. Um and he intriguingly, for years since then, has said Oh, I've got something in the works, I'm doing something and nothing's ever come off.
1: Yeah, I remember I'd say about a year and a half ago, there were rumors that he was gonna like that his second film was gonna play at I think Sundance or one of the big American festivals, which didn't amount to anything. Mm. And that's kind of the, the sort of ground he's been in since then. I think you know, he's, he
0: is doing something this year though, because he has some kind of role on the new Ryan Johnson film yes, Looper. It's, yeah. Whether it's a producer or a kind of consultant or something, or whether he's helped with the script, I'm not sure. But that. For the film Looper, makes that even more intriguing.
1: Yeah, and you, were, we were, um, both of us, we've said in the past, we're both already very intrigued by it because we're both huge fans of of Ryan Johnson's work.
0: And yeah, and with that little element thrown in, um, yeah, he's, he's the sort and of Jennifer Love Hewitt's in it as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, he's the sort of person I think. Uh, yeah, I, I would love to see what he would do with. Eight thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah,
0: he will literally go through the gears at a thousand dollars at a time. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I just wonder why he's not done anything. I mean, is it yeah. just he wants to do it completely on his terms, or
1: why well, isn't he uh, like a he, he must? Be, isn't he like a professor at a university or something like that? Oh, what a fucking show off! Uh, because hey, that may be made up, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he. I, he, think he I think he's got a background in in you know quite high end physics because right. obviously there's a lot of that in in Primer. Yeah. And yeah, I think maybe he's got like a proper job <laughs> and he just kind of like is focusing on that. And He's,
0: then... he's, he's going for tenure rather than yeah. he is for a, a sophomore film. There's no
1: tenure in filmmaking. Cause, uh, Absolutely fucking not. There's a lot of uh, heartbreaking stories that attest to that.
0: Yeah. You're only as good as your last film and you know no one's going to give you money because they yeah. think you've got a good idea. Who have you got?
1: Next up, uh, in a similar vein, someone who made a... A sci-fi film on a slightly larger budget. Uh, Neil Blomkamp.
0: Oh, yeah. He, he was uh, given the keys to the kingdom, wasn't he? That yeah, guy, definitely.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, he struggled initially in order to get his first film made because, uh, th- as we discussed in the past, he was uh, originally going to be the guy behind Halo mm-hmm. and the studio said no because he's not made a film. Um,
0: but they'll give the fucking Legacy Boy, Tron Legacy Boy, <laughs> $170 <laughs> yeah. I I know. Maybe they thought, well, this Blomkamp kid... He did all right. Let's let's take a chance on this young buck.
1: Oh, we missed our chance the first time round. Yeah. maybe I could no, have got no, a film. No fuckers heard of. I've never made a feature film before. <laughs> um, so uh, he, uh, uh, but you know, he had a relationship with uh, a professional relationship. I should point out, no, yeah. no rumours, <coughs> yeah. no rumours. Starting with uh, Peter Jackson. Oh, Peter Jackson then uh, said, did he well, give him his lovely boner? <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he said to him that you know that you, you didn't get a chance to do halo what, what else would you like to do essentially mm. um and he's you know he had this uh, short film he'd made about aliens living in johannesburg they expanded it into a narrative film in the form of uh, district nine which mm-hmm. was a very fun and entertaining blockbuster with a uh, bit of social commentary thrown in there and exploding cows as mm. well giant prawns giant prawns uh, often missing from say uh, the work of spike lee mm-hmm. who Always does the commentary, but forgets the, the prawns. <laughs> um, and he's got a film out uh, next year called Elysium, which is a, a big bl- budget action film that no one really knows anything about, other than it stars uh, Matt Damon. And I would really like to see what what other visions he has, what what else he's going to kind of uh, bring to the table. Because I do think that District Nine is a is a hell of a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It is a very very well made film, very well executed. Uh, and you know, I think there should be. There, there need as we've we've mentioned this in the past. There need to be more people making films who know how to just like put a fun film together, which uh, there are precious few of in Hollywood these days. They either make them really dumb or uh, no, that's it.
0: Yeah, just really <laughs> dumb. Yeah, um, yeah. It'd be interesting to see how Elysium turns out. Yeah.
1: Also, I just like the fact there's a film called Elysium out there because it's not. It's uh, it's not a word you hear that often.
0: No, I haven't heard it since you just said it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you another actor okay. who is a. Uh, who's only directed one film, and I think if I tell you who it is, it'll inform your next choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was quite a striking film. No pun intended. Uh, it's Gary Oldman. Oh yes. Um, Gary Oldman uh, made uh, *Nil by Mouth*. Um, the feel-good hit of the summer uh, <laughs> 1997 or 8 when it came out. Um, a, uh, a film set in swinging London uh, in a grim council estate where Ray Winston battered the fuck out of Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates? Kathy Burke. Kathy Burke. Kathy Bates wouldn't take that kind of shit. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it's, you know, an absolutely stunning film. Um, brutal. Brutal film. Um, but quite... It's Brutiful. <laughs> I've just coined a phrase it. More than an a- offensive accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise to all our uh, Far Eastern listeners. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it's a very very good film, and he hasn't done anything since, has he, Ed?
1: He hasn't. No, that was his one and done. Uh, it was a big thing at the time. I remember there was lots of reports about. You know, it, it played at like a. Played its premiere and, and he was seen kind of like crying at the the, the rapturous response it received. And uh, there's been speculation that maybe maybe put too much of himself into it. Although he's since more or less just been like, well, no, it, it, I was just very proud of the work that it wasn't like a autobiographical work. Right yeah.
0: Because, I, I mean, Gary Oldman is just a general round dude, isn't he? Yeah. And I, I'd love to see him doing something like that again. Um. So And I believe that if I set you up with Gary Oldman, you can lead very easily on with a director who made a very similar type of film.
1: Yeah, and who in fact thanked Gary Oldman when uh, we saw him talk about the film. And also in the credits. And in the credits. Uh, it's Paddy Considine, who directed, the, he's direct, he directed a short film, for which he won a BAFTA, called mm-hmm. Dog All Together, and then he expanded that into a feature film called Tyrannosaur, which was one of my favourite films of last year.
0: It was good. It was in my top 20 probably
1: i think we talked about it um, on the first episode of this uh, podcast the, we did uh, i think the one that we released yeah. um the uh, and, and that was a very hard hitting and, and gritty uh british film but there was, was there was a kind of a lyrical quality to it it, was, it felt uh like it it was kind of about something grander than just say than just depicting life on a council estate and uh, it was very visually accomplished because uh you know there's a uh, there's often a case with actors who become directors their films are a bit visually indifferent because mm-hmm. they are coming from a background where that's not uh a thing that yeah. they have to consider or in the case of say someone like zach brath they just steal <laughs> style from a lot of other people yeah um well his felt very very uh cohesive and it was a it was a very powerful and and interesting first film uh, I'm really excited to see what he does next. His next film is a ghost story called "The Leaning," mm. and I think it's very interesting about a dodgy staircase. <laughs> I think it'll be uh, interesting. To- whoosh, to what... what a terrible name for a! Film. It's a terrible name for a film. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what he handles with a different subject matter. It's, it's it's very intriguing to me that he seems to be straight away moving away from being typecast as someone who only does like Ken Loachy style dramas.
0: Well, I mean, that was very similar with the guy whose name escapes me who did From London to Brighton. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, he he made this really stark film about, you know, which, again, was very brutal. Um, and to complete, as if to completely escape that, he made a knockabout supernatural caper with Reece Shearsmith and Andy Circus yeah. called The Cottage. Was the Cottage, called? that one, yeah. Um, so, yeah, almost as a reaction to that, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, to that, and I wonder if that's what Contadine's up to um, yeah, who knows Maybe. um, my next pick is, um, I can completely explain why these two people, these two directors have never made a film before, uh, never made a film since but their debut film is still pretty good, it's uh, Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez otherwise known as those two idiots that made the Blair Witch Project yes. um, their debut film, um still stands up there as one of the most profitable films ever made uh, because it cost fuck all and it made a shitload of money. (laughs) And um, the reason that they haven't made a film before is because they can't think of a gimmick that will be as good. Because I think we've mentioned it before, for all the found footage films that you've seen and for all the, you know, how hackneyed it seemed now, the Blair Witch Project is still a very effective Little film. Yes. For what it sets out to do, it it delivers uh, incredibly well. Um, It's not perfect, by any means. Um, But um, you would think that given their successes, they would have done something else. They've done things individually, but they've never done anything together. And individually, the films they've made have been straight to video shit, basically. Yeah. Um, And I, I would have thought that the world would have been their oyster after the Blair Witch Project. Because yeah. it's certainly been that way for the Paranormal Activity gang. Yeah. Even though they've changed directors over them, but...
1: Yeah, but o- o- Oren pelli who's the guy behind the uh, the Paranormal Activity series, he's uh, very much remained involved with that, and he's obviously done lots of uh, stuff since then as producer on other projects, mm-hmm. like uh, Insidious, that yep. uh, film he did with the guys from Saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, he, he is very much the antithesis of those guys, because... Pretty much as soon as that film was released, he was like... He'd lined up, you know, a sequel to that, which he wrote. He lined up uh, other projects he wanted to work on, other directorial works, a TV series. You know, he just straight away leapt into doing all those other things, whereas those guys have... Yeah, it's it's weird that they never managed to capitalise it in some way. Yeah. well, And a shame, really, because, like you say, Blair Witch very effective and very good, maybe... Maybe they just made so much money they don't really feel like.
0: Oh, I wonder how much money they did make. Because mm. have
1: it... got, I think it, it probably made them millionaires.
0: Yeah, probably they not have to do much after yeah. that. Um, what, what what's your uh, is this your last choice or is mm. this,
1: yeah yeah uh, similar to Paddy Constantine someone who made a, a film from last year that was very uh, a British film from last year that was uh, very very good and who has already kind of lined up a couple of projects they want to work on is uh, Joe Cornish. Oh. of um adam and joe yeah uh, who made the film attack the block which i enjoyed a great deal i thought that was a really i enjoyed really it too film yeah uh, very fun it was a really good action film not so much horror but you know i don't think it was trying to be I, I personally don't think that film was trying to be a horror film i think it was trying to be an action film with strong comedy elements mm-hmm. and it did that very well especially considering that it was you know just set in a tower block yeah but it was was. very it was, uh, really well made it looked it looked amazing for you know a, a a a british film uh there's a kind of aesthetic for british films that certainly when you get into sci-fi and horror that they go for much uh much uh lower down in kind of scale and budget and things mm-hmm. like that but that one felt 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 very big yeah uh, and he already has uh, lined up a couple of of projects he's working on a film called Rust or he's just been announced that he's adapting a, a graphic novel called Rust for Fox, and he's also been attached to an adaptation of a book called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which is this... Uh, it's a very sem- well-regarded book, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, seminal sci-fi novel that they've been trying to make into a film for years. And whether or not it actually will happen is uh, another question, but uh, it, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with his career going forward, having established himself as this uh, really talented... Action director uh, mm-hmm. in a sort of John Carpenter vein, but with a sort of slyer, wrier sense of humor. Even if you know he does go to Hollywood, that does mean that the Adam and Joe six music shows will never come back. Wow oh, that would which would be a great loss,
0: a real shame. My last um, choice, I'm going to completely throw out there from left field. Mm-hmm. It is a man who is unlikely to make another film again. Yeah, he will probably die soon, <laughs> but he has made one film. He's not a director. He is famous for another role. He invented this other role on a film. Can you guess who it is? No. It's uh, Walter Murch, who directed the batshit crazy Return to Oz in the 80s, and
1: has never directed a film since. I'd forgotten he did that film. That is a very, very terrifying and
0: good (laughs) film. Yeah, it's great. I prefer it to Wizard of Oz.
1: I think I probably do as well. I saw it on New Year's Day this year, it was playing on um like five or something and I watched mm. it a bit hungover with it, some friends. It is
0: a deeply disturbing film. It's and um yeah, we've never seen him direct another film again. Um it was between him and Haskell Wexler who directed Medium Cool back in the day. Mm. Um but I thought merch would be a more interesting choice. it's more more recent and you know, I I just wonder whether with merch, I think that, you know, this is a man who has defined his field of expertise. He's yeah. a, The sound editor exists because of him. Um, you know, he redefined that role on a film. And, you know, he's he is will go down in film history as being a, a very, very important person in that mm. regard. Probably the most important person in that regard. Um, but then he made this really bizarre kids sequel for Disney. Probably the darkest film Disney have ever done.
1: Very possibly.
0: Um, um, which just stands alone as this kind of weird curiosity made that I, I think it lost a lot of money. I'm not uh, yeah, sure. I it don't, I'm successful. pretty sure
1: it wasn't a big hit.
0: But it's just, I, I'm not really sure what anyone was thinking. And I wonder why <laughs> he hasn't directed again. Is it because it didn't make money? Whether his name is Dirt because, <laughs> you know, he made this, you know, chilling family slice Welcome. of entertainment. Yeah. Um, Or whether he just, you know, just found it wasn't for him, but it's full of so many weird ideas that, you know... um, What's the answer, Ed? I don't know. Uh,
1: I think it's been a while since I've read anything about uh, Return to Us, but I think he was maybe not the first choice. I think it was kind of a thing where he uh, he wound up with it rather than originating it, so maybe... uh, it wasn't like I, I'm pretty sure the resulting film is so strange and odd because of him, mm-hmm. but maybe the experience itself wasn't uh, wasn't so pleasant. Right. And certainly, uh, there can't be anything particularly pleasant if you've had huge success in one field and then you try uh, the first thing you try in another uh, as another position on a film is like pretty much resoundingly rejected, unfairly. But mm-hmm. you know, that's what happened. Maybe it doesn't, that kind of took it out of him. The desire, he kind of got his desire to be a director out there, made a film which I think, you know, a lot of people would read is actually really, really good, Mm -hmm. but which ultimately wasn't very successful and wasn't accepted at the time. So maybe it's just kind of, it would be too, it was too painful for him to kind of go back to.
0: Maybe his time will come again. Who knows? There is a lot of Oz films going out now, isn't there? There's a Sam Raimi's doing one and there's Mm. another one. Um, so, yeah, I wonder whether yeah. it's time to revisit that, that, Oz.
1: That Raimi one has a wonderful moment in the trailer, which... Uh, is there a trailer? Yeah, the trailer went up the other week. Uh, oh. The guy from Ultraculture pointed this out, that there's a, a moment that the first part of the trailer is in black and white and is shot in four by three. Mm-hmm. And then a, a tornado comes and takes the Great Oz's uh, balloon away, and then it's floating through the air. And as he arrives at Oz, the screen like expands alongside the balloon and goes into full like colour three D and you know, widescreen. And it's a really neat use of uh ratio changing uh that kind of mimics, you know, the shift from black and white to colour in the original. Right. But it's done in such a kind of a a kinetic and, and dynamic way that it's it's really it's kind of wonderful. The rest of the trailer doesn't really impress me that much because James Franco kind of shows up and does his slightly bored thing that he always kind of. Oh, does. James Franco's in it, is he's, he? He's Oz.
0: So, and when you say he goes to Oz, yeah, do you mean the magic land or the brutal prison in the, the HBO drama? The magic land. Because there'd be nothing better than his balloon getting blown away and he lands and gets raped in prison. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, sadly, it's not. Uh, it's not that. It's not a, a covert. Spin-off.
0: It's not Tom Pantana's uh, "The Wonderful World of Oz."
1: How I wish it was.
0: That would be amazing. So I think that um, we've done directors, don't you? Done. Done. It's it. Again, if you haven't heard it in this last hour or so, it's not even worth bothering with or <laughs> knowing or even thinking about. This so is the final word. Just fucking forget it. Um Clé de Cinema have nothing on us. Um, that's about right, isn't it? Probably. yeah cool so um, we'll be back with another podcast no doubt about something equally as interesting um, so in the meantime it is goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me